Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those who haven't met me, my name's Roger, and uh, do keep Ephesians 2 open in front of you, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your words spoken, that you caused it to be written down and transmitted to us, that we can hear it read, that we can reflect on it, indeed, above all else, that we may know you and be transformed through it. Do that mighty work in us, we ask today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, reading Ephesians has got me thinking about relationships and reality. Relationships are at the centre of life, aren't they? Uh, the relationships you have within your household or with your family or, or with the people you do life with. Uh, and it's worth stopping and thinking to yourself, how do they work? Uh, some relationships are very transactional. You know, Gavin does something for Mary and Mary does something in return for Gavin. But is that how God relates to us? Uh, like he's a divine vending machine in the sky where, you know, he doles out good things to those who do good things uh, themselves or doling out bad things for those who do bad things. I've also been thinking about reality, you know, a great philosophical endeavour, uh, you might say. But in the last 30 years, our world has entered a new phase of how it thinks. Uh, I was brought up a modernist, and my personal preference is in that direction, I realise, uh, where what I'm talking about is a, a view where what's true and what's not, uh, where there's what's true and what's not, and a common and overarching explanation for our world and my life within it. Now, in the last 30 years, postmodernism, the view that comes after modernism, it's grown in popularity where what's true and what's not isn't outside me, but rather decided by me. And so it reinforces uh, individualism and choice over, say, interdependence and community. And while it's uh, certainly not limited to specific generations, uh, it's probably a fair observation to say that anyone under 30 is very likely to know no different. It's the air they breathe. And yet, reading Ephesians stands to challenge all views on relationships and reality. In fact, Ephesians proclaims a view of the world where there is a common overarching explanation of our world and my life within it. And it places a premium not just on relationships, but on our relationship to God. And it's a far cry from thinking, thinking of that relationship of do something good, get something good, and do something bad, get something bad. In fact, when we come to Ephesians 2 today, the first half of it, we have here one of the purple passages of the Bible. Here we come face to face with our true selves. Here we come face to face with the true God. And where too we come face to face with the incredible love and kindness of God that has brought the two together. One last thing before we dive in, when it comes to reading anything, and so of crucial importance here reading the Bible, we need to work through who a passage is written to, and from that place, 
how it relates to me and my circumstances. Ephesians is a case in point. Uh, the people initially addressed had heard the good news about Jesus and trusted it for themselves. Uh, as we read it today, some, in fact many of us here, uh, are in the same boat. And yet others haven't put their trust in Jesus yet. That's completely fine. We want people of all uh, types to be here. But it makes a difference. As you hear the yous being spoken and what's being said, said, what Paul talks about, uh, where he talks about who you are and who you were, we have to use our minds to apply it to ourselves and to our circumstances as well as those around it. And we'll do that together today. Now let's dive in and uh, it would be fair to say, did you feel like this? Verses 1 to 3 feel like going to the doctor and getting very bad news. <laughs> it's even hard to listen to, but vital. If we're going to appreciate the extraordinary relationship we now have with God, listen to God's spiritual diagnosis of who we were without Jesus. And I say were because notice at the beginning he's talking to disciples of Jesus and talking about who they were, not who they are now. And so we read from verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And as Tiffany said earlier on, <clears throat> the main point here is we were dead. Our actions, our lifestyle, our attitude the way we live or our walk all have one thing in common. They reek of us ignoring God, our maker's rule. Reek of us, uh, we who were made to love him, ignoring him. This is a letter about life. But to appreciate that, we need to confront this first. While to each other, we look like we're living and breathing. As God sees us or saw us, we were dead. Paul actually uses the word uh, uh, walk here uh, in the original language for the first time of seven times in this letter. This is a letter about the way we walk or live. Uh, the translators have translated it as live, which is entirely helpful. But I think, too, just, just you know, Mentioning the way in which the word walk is used gives you a fuller picture of the life and lifestyle idea that comes with it, doesn't it? And especially here where we were walking, but walking in death. So what does this spiritual death, what does it look like? What are its characteristics? There are three given here. The first is to follow the ways of the world. And this, these things that we talk about, you may find them confronting because they may challenge your own view of yourself or what you were. 
in the first place, following the ways of the world, is actually saying we go about like sheep with one another, being part of humanity collectively that has abandoned God's rule and God himself. You see the symptoms all around you, uh, promoting promiscuity and abortion, uh, greed and gossip. Even when it's not spelled out explicitly, it's so much of the air we breathe, the advertising we see, the messaging we hear and the expectations that people place one on another. I'm sure you've heard of peer pressure. Well, the world exerts just that to maintain the status quo apart from God. Go with the flow. So the spiritually dead don't follow the ways of God, but the ways of the world. Second characteristic, we follow the ruler of this world. Uh, The Bible testifies throughout that we were made to be followers. There's no escaping God's design for us. But if we don't follow the God we were made to follow, then the devil rules over us. And his, his is a kingdom, and remember it's limited and under God's authority, his is a kingdom of lies. That's the currency he trades in. Uh, You won't die if you disobey God, he says. You are your own boss, he says. And when we were spiritually dead, we swallowed those lies wholesale and yet don't actually realise we are enslaved to the devil. The third characteristic, the third characteristic is we follow our own sinful nature. That's what the flesh means here. Uh, Hearing those first two, you might be uh, uh, lulled into thinking that you are a victim. But we're not victims in our own death. We're implicated by our own desires and decisions, those things we think and do that fly in the face of God and his loving rule. Now, whichever of these three may be more prominent at any given time, whether it's our environment or the devil or our own nature, they are all symptoms. Mind you, they are not simply symptoms of being spiritually sick, but spiritually dead. Every single one of us. And when God looks upon any life lived this way, it brings his anger. Verse 3 tells us we deserve his wrath. This is reality as God reveals it. That makes sense if he's made us to serve him and yet we're not willing to. That makes sense if he desires what's for our best and yet we'd self-destruct our lives. That makes sense if he is holy and set apart from sin, but we are unholy. It makes sense and it's just, but it is frightening. The most frightening thing about it is that you and I couldn't do anything about it. Uh, Dead people don't even realise the danger they're in. And dead people certainly don't bring themselves back to life, do they? 
And yet without God showing us the truth as he does here, we so easily look at each other and say, we're not that bad. Uh, I read somewhere, someone has said, we're like miners down a coal mine, uh, each blackened with coal dust, yet comparing ourselves only to each other rather than someone outside the mine and thinking, we're pretty clean. But verse 3 All of us were dead. It's pretty clear, isn't it? That there is nothing lovely about us that God has to operate with. And yet, and wonderfully, that's not where God leaves us. In fact, he's worked an incredible transformation from death to life. And that's what we come to in what follows in the rest, uh, and particularly from verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. When our trust is in him, you and I have been made alive with Christ. God is on the front foot, taking the initiative when we could do nothing for ourselves. But more than that, look at who he is and what he's like. The original language here, make the point, uh, make the point, it doesn't speak just of love once, uh, but twice. Speaks of the great love with which he has loved us. Uh, Dave told me the story of how he met his neighbour a few years ago, I've got permission from Dave to tell this story, otherwise I'd probably owe him five bucks like one of my kids if I don't ask. He doesn't mind me telling you. Uh, Dave met his his new next-door neighbour at midnight one night. Uh, Strangely, there was a knock on the door and when he went down, he found the man saying, excuse me, I think your pool is flooding into my yard. And sure enough, Dave went out had a look at the yard and there uh, the water was flooding over the pool, uh, over the fence, over the grass. The hose had been left on. Now, when you picture that, that's not good enough to express how God's love overflows. Uh, maybe Maybe a tsunami would be a better word, a tsunami of love washing over us, but not one that's destructive but restorative. Just as God's great plan was to raise Jesus to life again, so through him are we when we trust him. This is our God. This is who we are dealing with, hearing from and being amazed by. He is the one with whom we may walk in our lives. Picture yourself walking alongside your closest companion in all the world, doing life together, sharing yourself, relaxing in their company as they share themselves, growing in knowing them better. Can you imagine that? Uh, That is the picture of life God is painting here between us and him. Uh, Not living apart or separate, but knowing him 
and experiencing him and bathing in his love and mercy. God the Son sacrificed himself in death according to the Father's plan so we might walk with and enjoy him. But as if that wasn't enough, here again is the lavish love with which he loves us. It reminds me of Deuteronomy 7. It's got overtones of what we heard in that reading, doesn't it? Where there's nothing lovely about us and yet God washes us washes over us with this love and so we read halfway through verse 5 what comes next it is by grace you've been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus And so, as Christ was raised to rule over all, do you see what the Father's done? He's lifted us up to the same throne of authority. As his resurrection declares him Lord and ruler, we too get to share in his reign. It's something that has happened. It's in the past and in the future when the Lord Jesus returns everyone, and I mean everyone, everyone will see God's kindness. They'll see the Lord and reigning with him those who've trusted him and the amazing grace that God has displayed that any should be present with him. Years ago, uh, I took one of the boys, one of my boys, to a stage show. It was actually The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, done with puppets and creatures, with puppeteers controlling them, where you couldn't see the puppeteers uh, inside the costume. But at the end, uh, when it was all over and they had the curtain call, as the lights shone down on the stage and everyone in it, the audience and I, including Sam and myself, uh, we saw who operated the giant and the lion and the beavers. The people who had been in the shadows, uh, we saw for who they really were. Now picture that on the world scale. And the stage is filled with the people God has saved by the immeasurable riches of his grace. Seen for who they really are, seated with the king in front of everyone. And yet that's not the main point. All will see, indeed, through them, the wonder of Jesus, our king. When you take what God has done for us in Christ and put it against the backdrop of our past, you see it more clearly, don't you? It's like when uh, we bought my wife Louise's engagement ring, and this is going back some time ago now. Uh, The jeweller held the ring on a black velvet cloth by way of contrast so we could see the diamond's brilliance. Here in these words, against the terrible blackness of being dead before God, we see the brilliance of our life and inheritance so much more clearly. Do you see what all this means? All this talk of mercy and love and kindness and grace. 
It means we haven't worked for what we've been given. It is, in fact, a gift. Reading from verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are children of God, united with the Son. Ours is the guarantee of the Spirit, and it is all by grace. Being given, uh, shown grace is being given a gift. Uh, it's a gift of the relationship. Indeed, you don't, you know, you wouldn't give a, a member of your family a gift and then expect them to say back, "Well, how much do I owe you?" <laughs> That's not the character of a gift or giving in your relationship. And the word grace, its letters can help you remember what we've heard here today. Take the first letter. Uh, make it the first letter of these words, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. He has done everything for we who could do nothing. And so you can see, I hope, that there's nothing we have done that we can boast about. In fact, it's ruled out completely. Standing alive before God, all we can do is look back where we've come from. Again, it has those, the ring of Deuteronomy 7 and the experience of Israel with God. And as they gave thanks for what all he had done, we too give thanks for everything God has done in Christ. And it doesn't matter who you are or what people you belong to, whether the Ephesians or the Jews who experience God's special favour, even Paul, God's authorised messenger, we are all saved by grace. There is no other way to be saved. Grace is the great leveller. Now, in understanding God's grace toward us, how will we live our lives? How will you walk? Well, we've seen boastings out of the question. Now look again at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In fact, the word is there again, to walk in. Back in verse 1, we used to walk in trespasses and sins, but now as God has remade us and brought us from death to life in Christ, it's so we may do the good works which he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And at this point, you might go, well, that surprises me. Aren't good works counted for nothing? We've got nothing to boast in. Uh, Yes, that's true, and also, when it comes to good works, it's not. It's true because we can't do any good work to be saved by God. And it's not true because once we've been saved, there are good works God has prepared for us to walk in. And what we need to do is get the horse and cart in the right order. Only one can go first and the other follow. Our works can't save us, but once saved, we will walk in good works. Only God's rescue of us can come first, but good works in us will follow. 
But even then, they're not our good works. As Paul says here, they're God's good works because he prepared them. Now, you'll remember I said at the outset, as we read God's word, we need to think about how, uh, think of it through uh, the eyes of the people who first heard it and then how it relates to us in our circumstances. And if you know you're someone, as you hear today, uh, who has not yet trusted Jesus and received God's grace, or if you're not sure, then the invitation is here before you today to move from death to life, to move from estrangement from God to being a child of God. Accepting that offer is as simple as praying. Praying a prayer, thanking God for what he's done. Saying sorry and please forgive me. Make me alive with Christ. That's all you need to pray. Is that a prayer you need to pray today? And if, like the Ephesians, you've already received God's grace, or indeed, if you receive it today, what then for you? Well, here are three challenges from God's word today. The first one I want to give you is to live in step with reality Of course, trusting Jesus in the first place, that invitation that we just uh, heard extended is an expression of that. But what I mean is there's a push in some quarters to reject the notion of God's wrath, that it's at odds with his love and out of step with the Bible. But haven't we seen God's wrath and God's love here present together today? God's love revealed in grace doesn't deny his wrath revealed in judgment. It's not a choice between one and the other. Both are true. And so we need to recognise reality and live in step with reality. The second challenge is to recognise the radicalness of grace. It's my experience, and because of the way people view relationships and view God, uh, and indeed uh, we so often lack an ability to put ourselves in others' shoes when they think differently from us, it's my experience that when you talk to someone who doesn't yet trust Jesus and talk with confidence of your relationship and resting in love, Because they've got that do something good, get something good, do something bad, get something bad sort of view of God and view of the world, the person you're talking to will often respond to you credulous, uh, just disbelieving that you should be so arrogant. And I think I've got to the bottom of it as to why. I mean, obviously, it's a spiritual matter. God has to change people's hearts. But in the very present moment, in their minds, with that attitude, do something good, get something good, do something bad, get something bad, what they hear you and I saying is, I've earned God's love. When you and I know nothing could be further from the truth. Our opportunity is, and as we've heard today, 
to share the radicalness of grace, to share the unloveliness of ourselves when God met us in his love and mercy. In the third place and finally, what should you do? Well, look for and apply yourself to the good works God has prepared for you to walk in. I've preached this passage uh, before and so often at this point I jump to 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 because when you read those words it's very clear that it's the Bible, it's the scriptures that show you what the good works are that God has prepared for you in advance. Uh, Let me invite you to have a look at that later. But I think I've actually jumped too quickly, uh, too far in the first place because though the Bible does do that, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, is itching to share those same good works here in Ephesians, particularly in chapters 4 to 6. And chapter 4, verse 1, will introduce them by commanding us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And the good works he describes in what follows. And so, and I often meet people who are wondering what are the good works that God wants them to do. Remember that individualism we talked about earlier? Those he has for you are very much the same he has for me. They're written in plain sight for all of us to see. And we'll get to chapters 4 to 6 soon enough, but when we do, and do feel free to read on ahead, remember as you read each one, these are the good works we have been remade in Christ to do. Where we get to live up to the family likeness. Where we get to demonstrate grace to others, drawing from the deep well with which God has loved us. And so let me leave you with a suggestion, a way of taking verse 10 and allowing it to shape our prayers. You can do this with any part of the Bible, but gee, this one's a great one. Why not uh, learn verses 8, 9 and 10, but particularly verse 10, take it and pray each morning, As you start a new day, dear Lord, please help me to walk today in the good works which you have prepared for me to walk in. Let's come before God and pray right now. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you humbled humbled by your word, humbled by our sins and transgressions in which we once lived. We thank you that you loved us when we were unlovely. We thank you for your extraordinary plans in Jesus, that your grace would come through him making us alive with him and raising us up in his glory to reign. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, uh, give us the eyes to see and the obedience of heart to walk in the good works which you have prepared for us today. 
and may it be to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.